Welcome to Conservation Unfiltered, presented by Conserve the Wild, your destination for an unfiltered look at conservation. Now let's get wild. Hello, listeners. Thank you for joining me for another episode of the Conservation Unfiltered podcast. This is episode number 29, Creating New Hunters Through Food. For those of you who are new listeners, or even for those of you who've been listening but haven't noticed yet, we are big fans of the Quality Deer Management Association. In my opinion, the QDMA is one of the best conservation organizations out there. I've been a member for years, and I plan to be a member for the rest of my life. Again today, I want to spotlight a tremendous program the QDMA has developed in-house, their Field to Fork program. Hank Forster is going to join me, and Hank is the Assistant Director of Hunting Heritage for the QDMA and a Hunter Recruitment Specialist. He will explain how Field to Fork works, who it helps out, and how you can find and start a Field to Fork program in your area. We're also going to talk about some details regarding trends in hunting and why it's important to mentor new hunters. This is a good one. You want to stick around for the entire episode. The elk that you're putting in the freezer, that was your elk? Mm-hmm. That's yeah, awesome. I'm one of these crazy lucky people who drew a non-resident Kentucky elk tag. It was a cow tag, so, um, but only less than 57 or 56 can be allotted by state law, so uh, I think it was like a 1 in 700 chance. Oh, wow. That's crazy. And, I didn't kill it till the last morning. Uh, we had what the out like what people I guess would consider terrible weather, but it wasn't bad. We had the first morning, first day was all rain and fog. You could, we didn't see an elk. Second day we had good weather, but we got messed up by other hunters and people on UTVs, and we had we had bedded some elk and we were just gonna wait them out, you know and had another hunter drop in on top of them, not know they were there, and had a guy and his wife and their dog just pleasure riding around this public land that I had a limited entry tag to. And then um, uh, it snowed day three, or overnight and day three, and just couldn't get it done. And then uh, last morning was finally, it was super windy on day three. And, and luckily day four was snow covered, but calm as can be. Um, is it only a four-day season or is it was that a five-day season but i had a um i had to fly to texas on on day six i was planning on not hunting day five okay all right yeah, yeah. that that's awesome um how much meat did you end up getting out of a kentucky cow uh, i think i've got a the i think i've got about 135 pounds in the freezer that's going to be some good meals um, yeah, we it, up here in Pennsylvania, uh, where, where I'm from, we've had an elk season for ooh, a good 10 or 15 years, but it's same deal, so pretty pretty limited. Um, but we actually just started this year. They opened up an archery season, so um, I haven't even put in for an elk tag since I don't know maybe year two or three that they opened up the season. But this year I put in for archery, and of course, you know I think there's only uh, I think there are only seven tags total available, so probably put us around that one in 700 
deal, if not more. And um, so, of course, I didn't get drawn, but um, I'll probably continue to put in for that as, as every year. That would be mm-hmm. quite the experience, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. And then I, uh, you know, we got to see some bulls bugle and run into a cow call. And I was like, oh my God, I got to go do this out west, you know, with a bull tag <laughs> and a rut. It, uh, it was uh, pretty unbelievable. In uh, 2018, I think it was the end of October and beginning of November, uh, my dad and I went out to Montana to hunt elk. And uh, we didn't see a single elk, didn't see a single mule deer uh, while we were out there, but um, just had absolutely terrible weather. But um, it was definitely a, a really cool experience to, to be out there in uh, you know, real mountains, not mountains like I'm used to here in Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. So, Thank you. Um, so for this podcast, I mainly want to focus on um, on the Field to Fork program. Okay. Um, and at the very end, um, I'm, I'll end up editing the, the last little bit down a little bit for um, – I like to do a, a call to action where basically you just sort of give one sort of big takeaway maybe that we haven't – that we didn't talk about or something you really want to hammer home that, you know, that sort of compels – hopefully compels the listeners to maybe go out and do something. So just to give you a heads up on that. And um, so you can sort of think about it as we're talking. Yeah. But uh, so one of the things that, that I love about the QDMA is they bring in people who are knowledgeable in specific areas. They have a lot of biologists and, and things like that that work for them. Um, and you didn't grow up hunting and became more of an adult onset hunter. Uh, so how does that help with your role in QDMA? Well, honestly, I think it's kind of what inspired it. Um, I, uh, my parents don't hunt. Um, I grew up in Western North Carolina. Um, I always tell people, I mean, there's a healthy kind of history and culture of the, you know, original frontier um you know i kind of knew some of my family history and you know one of my distant you know uh like my fifth grade grandfather was you know kind of a frontiersman um he was a revolutionary war hero and and kept a journal so you know we got a decent look into his life but you know i was always brought up you know hearing about the over the mountain men and you know how how they fought off the british or whatnot um and of course, that was you know the early frontier of Native Americans too, and we have that kind of history and culture. Um, so I was just always um, enamored with that. I uh, you know I wanted to be an Indian or a mountain man. I guess I was just born a couple hundred years too late. Um, <laughs> but I had um, you know family who who loved the outdoors. I mean, my grandparents lived on a small farm. Um, you know, they didn't. They had a few horses and stuff, but it wasn't like a uh, agricultural farm. It was woods with creeks and, you know, streams. And um, my grandmother loved to take us for hikes and show us wildflowers and, you know, local flora and fauna. So I had this, you know, love of nature instilled in me and love for the outdoors. My dad was a backpacker, camper, you know, all that kind of good stuff. Um but I just I always want to do it. I mean, when I went over to friends' houses when we were kids, if they had a BB gun, I wanted to go shoot their BB gun because I didn't have anything like that. Um, 
but I, I was fortunate enough to grow up down the street from, uh, you know, one of my best friends growing up and his father. And they were hunters and they had a little farm outside of town and we would, you know, go out there and do a few chores on a, on a weekend or after school. And then we might squirrel hunt or dove hunt or, I mean, we, we walked miles around that place and, and didn't draw blood. But, um, you know, it, when I was 14, 15, 16, you know, he was raising a, a bird dog. You know, I just, I was, they were my mentors and, um, and I understand, I mean, I, I, I understand the value of a mentor being in that position as a kid. And, um, and so I was fortunate to have them and have somebody who was allowing me to tag along. And, um, you know, as I kind of got older, I got more into hunting. Um, I'll admit I didn't hunt a lot when I was in college, I was doing other things, but, um, you know, I, I always um, had a desire to hunt, and I, I really believe it's naturally inside most all of us. I don't know what it's like to be anyone else, um, but you know, I, I think that most of us are hunters, and and we're just detached from the natural world. Um, you know, Stephen Renault often talks about how it's actually uncommon that you don't. Hunt. I mean, it, it's more of a, it's more crazy to think that someone doesn't hunt than hunts because there's only been the last couple hundred years where you could survive on this earth without being a hunter-gatherer unless you lived in, in London in the 1500s or were really good at bartering. Um, you know, we, we're an animal, I believe. And, um, you know, I have a bird dog probably because of my buddy who uh, let me tag along had a bird dog. And when I got this dog 10 years ago, I read a book and it was what not to do to train your dog. And the whole premise was that this is in your dog don't screw it up. You know, he's a natural born hunter. And then you, you know, it, it really took this, like it looked at the dog as like, Hey, this dog is going to want to walk in front of you because a bird dog is in front of you. You know, a retriever should be at your side, but a bird dog can't hunt beside you and you know, all that kind of stuff. But, um, you know, I think we're just like, uh, my bird dog. We've, we've got it in us and we're, you just got to get reconnected. So everyone that, that's going to be listening to this who isn't a QDA member, uh, they're going to be wondering, you know, what they, they want us to get onto it. And basically they want to know what is the Field to Fork program? Well, okay. In a nutshell, can you tell everyone what it is? Yeah, so um, I've worked for the QDMA, Quality Deer Management Association, for I guess around six years now. Um, originally is their hunting heritage manager and um, you know with the advent of the R3 movement which uh, you know it's kind of our industry term for how we recruit and retain hunters the 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 R3 stands for recruitment retention and reactivation and that's kind of how hunters exist we recruit new ones we retain active ones and we re-engage lapsed hunters, uh, reactivation. And so, um, you know, that's kind of the focus of the industry. Four percent, four and a half percent of Americans today hunt. Um, and we all know the importance and value of hunting in this country. It still funds the majority of conservation works in this country. It funds state agencies that, you know, the Pittman-Robertson tax uh, creates a huge federal fund that's allotted to the states to pay for 
state agencies and conservation projects. And and as as hunting participation declines, there's going to be, I mean, it is a crisis today, but it will fail if we don't do something about it. So uh, starting, you know, four or five years ago, states started looking at hiring R3 professionals. And of course, you know, um, you know, we had a strong focus of R3 at QDMA. So um, a couple of years earlier, I, I'm, I attend farmers markets and um, I was at the local Athens farmers market and they were doing a chef demonstration on how to make ricotta cheese. And I'm sitting there thinking, wonder what they think if we brought a deer in here and broke it down. And so I reached out to the um, head of the farmer's market and I said, you know, I, I was sitting for one of your chef demonstrations the other day and I was wondering if y'all would entertain the idea of us bringing a deer in and breaking it down. And they were all for it, 100%. But um, schedules, it, you know, it's kind of end of year, the market closes, you know, the market's not running right now. Um, you know, I needed to find a deer. I didn't think I was the expert, but um Fast forward a couple years, and um, I sat on the um, selection panel and the steering committee for the Georgia R3 coordinator, and we hired a guy named Charles Evans. Um, so he's the Georgia R3 coordinator, and um, you know, one day over lunch, I had told him that you know I had talked to the farmers market about bringing in a deer, and I didn't do it, and we wanted to start a hunter recruitment program. It focused on food and uh, first-time adult hunters. We've had a lot of, um, you know, youth hunting programs. We have a, a youth program at QDMA called the Rack Pack. Um, but from looking at the data, which is a big part of our three, we know that adults are a much more efficient audience. And if we wanted to teach a kid to hunt, we'd be better off taking their parent or guardian and then having them teach them. And so um, we're, you know, we both lived in Athens. And so we just decided one day over lunch to set up a booth at the farmer's market and see if we could recruit people who wanted to learn to hunt for food. And um, I, I do work for a deer organization, but I don't think there's anything better than whitetail deer a uh, bad pun, bang for your buck, but, um, I mean, they're in our backyards, uh, they're overpopulated in many instances. In Georgia, we can kill 12 a year on a, on a general license. Wow. Um, you know, we get 10 does and two bucks. Wow. Um, yeah, and, and I mean, you, you harvest one and you've got 40 or 50 pounds of venison in your freezer. Um, so what we did, we, we cooked some venison samples. I made some backstrap with a chimichurri sauce, some some bratwurst, and Charles made jerky. And we set up a table at the farmer's market on a Saturday morning, um, leading off with, hey, would you like to try some venison? And most people took us up on that. And then we'd fill them out and say, hey, do you try, you know, did you eat much venison? Yeah, have you ever been hunting? You know, da, 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 da. And then eventually get around to, you know, we're actually here to recruit. Uh, that year we were going to start with eight hunters, but we were going to recruit eight people who wanted to learn how to deer hunt for food and, uh, and teach them. And we filled up in three hours. We had a waiting list in three hours. Wow. And, um, and you know, we've, uh, we've now hosted four field to forks in Athens. 
Uh, we've we've evolved the program over the years. Uh, the first year we used graduate students from the University of Georgia. QDMA is headquartered. Uh, we're actually about five miles out of Athens in Bogart, Georgia, but we're a spinoff of the university. UGA has the foremost deer research facility in the world. And, um, you know, we recruited their graduate students to be our mentors. And, um, and it worked well. They, you know, we had a fairly young demographic that year. I think we were 18 to 47 or 56. I can't remember um, how old, but, um, you know, two females, six, six males. Um, you know, we had two undergraduates. We had an organic farmer, a chef, somebody who ran the local athens Clark County parks, um, a lawyer. But um, but it ended up, we did an organized hunt. So we, we do two afternoons of training. We do a Tuesday evening and a Thursday evening. I think in those days we did Wednesday evening and Thursday evening, but uh, Wednesday there's a farmer's market. And so we've evolved not to compete with the farmer's market. So the vendors, and we even had the farmer's market manager go through the program last year. Um, but we do two afternoons of training, three hours apiece. Um, more than half of that time is eating venison meals, shooting crossbows. Uh, we chose to use crossbows because we could train somebody to be effective and and efficient quickly, and we were taking advantage of our early archery seasons. So we can start hunting. You know, hunting season came in this year around September 13th or 15th, and it will go out in January, you know, 13th or 15th time frame. So we have, um, but we don't get rifle season until like October. 20th or something um i'm making these numbers up i don't know the exact dates this year but you know we have we have four or six weeks of archery season where um the time hasn't changed yet the deer are patternable in their summer range um it, you can hunt after work because it hasn't the time hasn't changed it's mild temperatures or actually it's usually too hot in georgia but what we're doing is we're trying to create a program that creates hunters and so we set this program up to create hunters, and, and we, we've made some mistakes over the years, and we've evolved to fix those. But, um, you know, we wanted to give them the longest time to replicate the process. And so we did the two afternoons of training. We do a Saturday evening, Sunday morning deer hunt around Athens. We called around, The first year we called around on tax ID maps and got permission of, you know, private landowners um, because we wanted to – use a process that they could replicate you know this wasn't we're going to go to a plantation in south georgia and uh we're going to take a deer hunt something you're not going to have access to we called around and we hunted urban athens uh, a few places inside the beltway we had 27 acres at the cunyma headquarters in those days and hunted three people on those 27 acres and and the organized hunt we killed zero deer <laughs> and uh you know it's archery hunting it, it doesn't always happen um but we ended up getting three deer you know we, we got eight of the people three deer that season and two of them were sitting with me and one of them was sitting with charles when they eventually harvested and follow up hunts and so we realized that's not sustainable like we can't we can't do this on ourselves so the next year we recruited the uh qdma athens branch and so now we recruit as many mentors as we recruit as mentees or first time hunters and we pair them. And, you know, um, you know, I guess last year we filmed Field to Fork. There's a video you can you can see on YouTube or the Internet. 
Um, it's on qdma.com slash FTF or our field to fork page. But that year we killed, I think, three deer during the organized hunt. But, you know, there's years where we've just we've just gotten one. But the success of the program is the follow-up opportunities and the community, um, what we've coined in um, in R3 and how, how a, a potential hunter goes through their journey to becoming a hunter. We kind of stole it from the marketing side of things and and we call it the outdoor recreation adoption model. And I'm not, I don't want to get real nerdy, but you know, there's a trial phase, you know, they're offered an opportunity and then they have to make a decision to continue. You know, is this something that they're going to do? And we think, and we believe that social support is what drives somebody to keep down that path. If they don't have social support, often they'll lapse or they'll fall off. And so We've created social support and community by making this a community-based program and bringing in as many mentors as hunters and pairing them. But they don't stay with the same mentor all the time. Um, we have a hidden Facebook group for Athens, um, you know, and so somebody or we have emails and texts, group texts and stuff. But somebody might say, I've got Wednesday, Thursday and Friday this week off and I'd love to go hunting. Is anybody available to take me? So. What I'm doing is I'm trying to get these mentors to, to, to mentor these new hunters, but also to share their access and to share their stands and, and even just share a phone number. Mentorship kind of changes over that path where someone needs somebody to sit with at first. They might be ready to sit by themselves. They might just need somebody in you know, somebody's phone number that's available to help them if they're successful. But... Um, we're just trying to create hunters, and so we've we've tried to set up kind of sustainable programs that do just that. Yeah, um, I guess that's sort of my biggest personal question about the program. You know, I, I followed along on what a lot of you guys have done and and how it sort of evolved. But like when I think to my own hunting, my favorite memories aren't the biggest buck I shot or anything like that. My favorite memories are the time spent with family and friends around hunting and sometimes not even a successful harvest. So my question is, you know, how does QDMA or the mentors, like how do you guys sort of keep in contact with these new hunters? Because that social aspect can oftentimes lead them to continue hunting more. Sure. Uh, just as I kind of mentioned, I mean, we've, we've tried to set up these channels where people are sharing stories and, 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 and offering, either to host or, um, you know, looking for a place to hunt. Um, you know, as we've, as we've grown Field to Fork, this year there will be 25 programs in 17 states. And, oh, wow. and I've, I've proven different models. So I just got back from Texas. Um, we hosted what I call a destination Field to Fork. It was four days, you know, at a hunting camp. It was actually like a commercial hunting lodge. That, um, that was gracious enough to host us um, for a field to fork and has for a handful of years. You know, we, it's different creating that social support there, but there are also, you know, some positives to that environment as well. I mean, these people got to experience deer camp. You know, they came for four days. We put them up for three nights. Um, you know, they got to sit at the bar and have a beer with their guides and shoot the bull. Um, you know, that's a lot that's really hard to explain to a non-hunter is that that culture of camp. And 
and gosh, in Pennsylvania, y'all have a totally different culture than we do down south. Or um, I was looking at, at photos from Wisconsin today um, on Facebook, and I was thinking, man, it'd be cool to go to one of those camps one time. But um, but what that opportunity gave them was it, it gave them hands-on experience. I mean, we had 10 hunters kill 19 deer and a hog in 3-6. And so everybody got to gut an animal. Everybody got to quarter an animal. Everybody took an animal home in their cooler and they're working on processing them at home now. So, you know, I set up a hidden Facebook group for them uh, a couple of days ago. We're going to have to create that social support in a different model than we do with our community-based program in Athens. Um, but, you know, I'm going to take advantage of the opportunities that we have. And believe it or not, my long-term data on last year's class, in which I don't, I don't have my super long-term data, but for these field to forks, we're doing a pre-selection survey. And then I'm selecting candidates based on, you know, what I'm looking for, which is first time hunters, didn't grow up in a hunting family that, you know, I, I prefer them not grow up in a hunting culture because I'm trying to diversify hunting and make it relevant to new audiences. Um, but then I'm doing a post event survey. So I'll send them a survey here in a few days to get their, their input from the program. And then I'm going to send them a survey a year later and see where they are. For Georgia and a handful of other states, I actually collect their user ID numbers and I will be able to see their future license purchases as long as they live. So, I mean, we are holding ourselves accountable and, and checking to make sure that we are successful. But last year in Texas, from the year survey that I just got back, 100% of them have a hunting license this fall. Oh, that's great. So, you know, if I was going to somebody and I was like, let's create a field to four model that's going to be sustainable. And I would I would push you towards a community based program, because in Athens now we have, you know, 40 or 50 graduates. We have, you know, 30 mentors. We have partners. We have people who have helped. I mean, so so when we get together to share a venison meal or. Um, do our in culinary social, um, you know, I invite everybody back. And so we really have this community in Athens and you don't get that as much with these destination models. But when you have the opportunity to, to host something like that, they can be, they can be just as successful, which I wouldn't have bet my money on, but it's because, um, but it's because they're given, you know, the opportunity to get their hands hands-on and gain that confidence. I believe creating a hunter comes down to confidence. And, you know, statistically, we know that if you don't teach somebody to take care of an animal, they're not going to go hunting it. You know, if they're not confident that they can gut and get that animal out of the woods and into their freezer, you know, the responsible person's not going to go shoot in an animal. And then, you know, the ultimate goal of R3 is to create a hunter someone who self-identifies as a hunter. And to me, that's just a confidence level um, to say, I can go do this. And everyone gets there at different, you know, it takes longer for some, uh, not others. You know, I've, I've got a few people who have went through Field the Fork a year or two ago that I still invite out and I'll even sit in the stand with them, you know, two or three years later. Um, and then I've got, you know, I've, there's this young lady in Field the Fork this year um, you know, she was hunting at our office on her own the other day, harvested her first deer with a crossbow. 
she didn't call anybody. She wanted to be alone for the recovery. Oh, wow. And, you know, it's just everybody's different, but, um, you know, and everybody gets to, you know, to their, you know, being a hunter at a different pace and, and needs different um, levels of mentorship, just as I spoke of earlier. Some just need somebody to call to help drag it out or even somebody to call to say, hey, I think I'm messing this up here. I, I'm trying to gut this animal. What am I doing wrong or whatever? But, you know, at the end of the day, it's all very daunting. Hunting is daunting. Cleaning an animal seems daunting. But it's really it's really not once you get a little bit of experience. I mean, it's um, there's not a lot of ways you can screw it up. And so, you know, just give people that confidence, and and we're finding that they'll uh, they'll they'll become hunters. So traditionally, you know, hunting is passed down from generation to generation. Typically, you know. For, the, for years, it's always been the kids sort of grew up that way. Mostly the boys were then introduced uh, into hunting. Um, now, you know, obviously hunting numbers are down uh, across the nation for a whole host of reasons. Uh, and we're not getting as much of that sort of generational recruitment. And a lot of the earlier movements in R3, and, and we're seeing this a lot in Pennsylvania, where uh, a lot of what we're trying to do to get people interested in hunting is focused on kids but as you've said field the fork focuses on adults why do you think that having adults start hunting would be more beneficial than trying to get the kids started um there's a few reasons um oftentimes program you know the the number one thing you know you know, why do we go to the farmer's market? Because I'm trying to get in front of a new audience. For far too long, you know, most QDMA members are avid deer hunters. You know, you know, 80, 90% of them. So that's not a membership that I'm recruiting field to fork hunters out of. Um, you know, for far too long, we've advertised hunting programs on state agency websites or NGO websites and, and, that's not where non-hunters are. So um, you have to go to the new audience, is first and foremost. And for far too long, we were taking the kids of current hunters out because we were running a program with current hunters and they were nominating their own kids or, or nephews or whatnot. For the difference between taking a youth out and an adult out is that an adult has a car, a checkbook, and a calendar that they create themselves. So I can teach an adult to hunt tomorrow and he can go do it, or I can, excuse me, I can teach an adult to go hunting today and he can do it tomorrow on his own. You know, a kid doesn't have a car, doesn't decide what they're doing when they're doing it. it we'd be better off teaching their parents to hunt. If our end goal was to have little Johnny or Jenny hunt, we should teach their mom or dad how to hunt, not them. You know, it's just an inefficient audience. Um, we know that a lot of things come up in life that changes what you do. Like I said earlier, I didn't hunt a lot in college. That's actually one of the lowest participation times of hunting is while people are in college. 
And we see that statistically. People drop off and some of them come back. But, you know, these young adults, they have, they have you know, money. They can buy gear. They can go on hunts. Um, and, and they're just an audience that you can connect with on a better level. And they can, the biggest thing is they can mentor and they can be an advocate for uh, hunting immediately. And that's what we're seeing. I've got one guy who went through Field to Fork in 2017. He's in the video. His name's Edwin. He's a Haitian immigrant. He's a um, PhD candidate at the University of Georgia. We taught him to hunt. And he took five new hunters out that same year. Wow. He killed 10 deer, I believe. He sent me an email the next year. like So so this year in like February or January when our season went out, he sent me a note and it said, hey, guys, I killed 10 deer last year, 10 deer this year. Am I doing good? I was like, <laughs> Edwin, I've never killed more than four deer in a season in my life, you know. But what he did with that venison is he put two deer in the lab at the University of Georgia in a freezer. And he, he sent out an email on a listserv and said, there's venison in the freezer. If you'd like some, take it. You know, Ranilla coined it venison diplomacy. I think yep. we do more for the future of hunting by sharing venison meals, inviting people over, than taking people hunting because we can do it in much, you know, in a larger, you know, we can, I can have 20 or 30 people over for dinner and it only took me a couple hours. And they eat this. They see the responsible use. I mean, um, you know, why why did we pick field to fork and food focus? I mean, look at the advent of farmers markets and 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 farm to table restaurants and earth fairs and whole foods and you know organic food. And I mean, if you want to talk about local sustainable protein, you know, look out your back window and there's a deer stand in there. I live in I live in downtown Athens and there's deer in my backyard all the time. Um, so, um, you know, these adults, they're inclined to hunt. People who go to the farmer's market or care about where their food comes from. Well, if they're willing to look at, at the facts, hunting is, is the way to go. Um, you know, that animal it lived in a wild, free of animal welfare concerns, um, you know, a natural life. And, uh, you know, hopefully we take that life quickly and efficiently and do our best to um, take care of the meat and to prepare it well. But, um, you know, these adults can do that immediately. And so um, they're our best advocates. They're our mentors. I mean, I, I, we had a handful of past participants mentor for us this year. Um, and, and, and they've recruited their own and they've become, a, you know, a spokesperson for hunting. But um, but you'll see Edwin on the video if you watch it. We we kind of profiled him because, um, you know, he has made that transition from a first time hunter, you know, bought a crossbow, bought a rifle, you know, harvesting more deer than I've ever harvested in a season and mentoring. I mean, he, he's taking five or six new people a year out. And um, and so it just the proof is in the pudding, as they say, that, you know, we're seeing instant gratification by taking adults and um you know you're familiar with qma i i ran a national youth hunt for you know the first four or five years that i was at qma maybe six um 
and you know we have the resources and the opportunity to teach somebody and 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 I'm not trying to you know toot our own horn but as you said I've got a deer biologist on staff and I have I had access to an amazing piece of property where you know we would have you know many of the years that we ran it we'd have a hundred percent success meaning somebody would take a deer home and I'd started tracking on data on that a long time ago and I was seeing that 40% of our participants, those youth, were continuing hunting. But I'll tell you that 20% of those snuck through my pre-selection surveys, and they were kids, uh, or they were at least in a hunting culture. You know, people weren't, didn't tell the whole truth or left off what, what didn't, wouldn't have worked. They sensationalized the nominations. But... Um, but we're seeing 80% of our participants in Field of Fork continue hunting. So we're getting almost a double return on investment, and that doesn't even include what they're doing in their community. You know, they're going back and sharing their venison, sharing their story in entirely new peer groups. And so that that's really the success, and that's a really long answer to ask why we're going after adults. <laughs> well, you know, and I think – Part of the reason why you're so successful, the, the fact that you have this title, Field the Fork, uh, you know, as you've stated multiple times, that you're focusing on the food aspect to, to hook people uh, into hunting. And I teach a culinary class at, a, at the high school level, and I've started to incorporate some wild game units into my classes because I've noticed that the connection that you can build with people with food is unlike any other connection you can build in any other way. So being able to show them that, hey, you know, this was sustainable, you know, the sort of locavore movement that has started a couple years ago, it's trickling down younger and younger. So these high schoolers are starting to now already start thinking about the food they're putting in their body. So if I can explain to them what you're saying uh, about, you know, how ethically, uh, it can be sourced and how nutritious it is and it's locally sourced and all that stuff. I mean, it, it really hits home with them when they can actually take a bite of venison that's prepared well. Yeah. And I, you know, I can't quantify, you know, what good we do having a hunting booth at the farmer's market or just handing out those samples. I should have, I should have said there was one of those clickers over the years and, you know, kept track of how many people I offer a venison sample to. And I'll tell you, it is one of the most rewarding parts of the whole program to me. I like to cook, but I love to sit there and BS with people across the table. And nothing makes me happier when somebody tells me they don't like venison. You know, I'm like, try one bite, please. Just try one bite because whatever you ate was prepared wrong or handled, mishandled. I mean, you got to remember the beef that's, in our grocery stores has been dry aged for 30 days and killed with a bolt gun and, and all that good stuff. I mean, they're probably playing music to it when it dies. I mean, you know, it, people need to do a better job of taking care of that animal, uh, getting the meat cool as quick as possible, aging venison, um, you know, but there is no reason, you know, venison should be gaming. Uh, we should celebrate, you know, uh, I love the idea of, you know, so if it is different than beef, it should be celebrated. But, um, but no, I mean, venison's delicious and, and we, we get the opportunity to do that. Um, but just as you're saying, I mean, we're becoming a food conscious society 
as a whole, I believe. Um, you know, there's there's been a few articles written of late that were kind of belittling the food-focused hunting movement and what we're doing. Uh, some of them named us, some of it didn't. I think they're just going after clicks because I, I think it, it's bogus to think that that's not the you know the the target market. You know, um, you know even when you know we started this pilot program out of the national office almost a pet project with me and Swanee I mean it's just something we wanted to do but it's what we do for a living as well but um you know the first question I get from volunteers uh, you know at least your more traditional is is like I I bet that's kind of tough to stand at the farmer's market and be pro hunter I bet you get a lot of flack and uh the answer to that is no I've I've had like three or four people say something negative to me in four years and they'll never do it in front of other people i had one vendor like someone helping a vendor one time uh, i walked around at the end of the farmer's market and i was handing out leftover samples of venison and first off every single one of our farmers that brings vegetables to the farmer's market is either hunting deer or has an eight foot fence and more than likely they're hunting them you know i was like hey you want to try some venison and they're they're like i eat venison all the time you know, I've been shooting them, you know, in July, something that hunters don't do. You know, that's a depredation permit, a whole different thing. That's crop protection. But but um, this one lady just was adamant that, you know, I, I just she, she kind of scoffed and said something. And I don't even I didn't even listen to it to remember what she said. But I said, I'm sorry, ma'am. You know, we actually have a lot of shared values. And the reasons why I hunt and the reasons why you may choose not to eat meat may be the same reason. And, and it's true. I mean, most people don't eat meat because they're concerned of animal welfare. And, you know, if and, you know, to grow soybeans in this country, as Charles always likes to bring up, you know, there's probably deer blood on those soybeans because you can't grow soybeans without protecting them from deer. And so, you know, we all have an impact on what we do on this planet and we have to choose what our impact's going to be. But you don't get off you know free there's no get out of jail free card you know um you know my mom's a vegan all power to her i respect anybody's decision that's that takes a lot of you know willpower and and that's a lot of work but you know for somebody to go to the grocery store and buy a bunch of avocados are they thinking about all the deforestation in mexico to grow those avocados or you know the water that we have to use to get almonds i mean Everything we do, we're consumptive users, and um, you know I can alleviate some of my impact on this planet by what what meat I choose to eat. And you know I, I drive a truck, but my my carbon footprint on this planet has more to do with the meat that I eat than the car that I drive. And we just don't think about it that way. Yeah, a lot um, of people like to disassociate and, and think we're not part of nature especially if you're living in a you know a city or suburban landscape but i mean the whole your entire life you are a part of the natural landscape you're the fact that you're alive is affecting that natural landscape so if you can hunt and obtain the meat that you're going to eat anyways in a way that's going to help the natural landscape as opposed to contribute to a larger carbon footprint you're actually having a a beneficial effect Absolutely. No, we build houses. We we row crop. I mean, we're creating deserts where these animals are displaced. Um, 
you know, even just to grow vegetables, you're, you're taking up, you know, things that could be forested where, where some forms of wildlife prefer. Shane Mahoney is doing an awesome initiative called the Wild Harvest Initiative, and we're, we're on his board. Uh, my, my CEO, Brian Murphy, is, is on his you know, steering committee or board, and um, we're trying to quantify the amount of wild protein taken in North America through fishing and hunting. And what we want to do is we want to sh- show the you know show the populations that hey if if you got rid of this wild harvest of protein, this is how many more acres of row crops we would have to grow. This is how many acres of forest we would have to level. You know, people don't think about that, but um, but actually all this wild protein that we're pulling off is huge. Um, we eat more wild protein than I think turkeys or chickens in this country and i'm wrong i don't know which one but it's crazy i mean we i think it's we eat more wild protein than turkeys are consumed in this country and there's a lot of turkeys consumed in this country but they have some cool fact like that and i'm misquoting it right now but um you know we want to quantify what this you know sustainable harvest uh you know is and and what it would look like if it didn't exist i want to back up for a second and Talk about the the two classes that you sort of that you have before the participants go on these hunts. Um, my first question is: Do the people that are, enter the program do they have to take a hunter safety course before uh, those classes? And and then also, other than eating and shooting a crossbow, what other kind of information are you covering for uh, during those classes? Sure. Um- I think in 2017, we started mandating they take online hunter education before the first class. Um, and we've continued to do that. Um, we, we go over. So uh, we, we do two three-hour sessions, and half of that is shooting crossbows and eating, eating uh, venison meals. But um, the first night, we do kind of a fill-to-fork intro. So... You know, why are we doing this? Why are we here? You know, how hunting is conservation, you know, deer populations and how they relate, you know, to societal issues and that kind of stuff. We obviously do crossbow safety, which is gun safety in principle, um, shot placement. And then the rest of that evening is shooting crossbows. Except, uh, you know, as I said, we, we do a venison meal, so we usually do a sit-down meal, and we might do, we'll do, like, deer biology during that meal. But, you know, a lot, the first notion for most people who replicate the program is, like, gosh, I'm inadequate to teach this. I don't, you know, we got to teach them so much education, but you really don't. You got to think about what you need to know to be a successful hunter. And, and I'm big on continuing ed, and I'll tell you about that in a minute. Um, but you know, it, it's really getting them comfortable shooting. It's, it's what they need to know. The next night we do hunting strategies, you know, we do a little tour and show them some deer sign and different deer stands. Um, you know, we go over regulations, uh, you know, that kind of stuff, but, but it's not, you know, there's no habitat. I mean, there's a little bit in the deer biology, there's a little bit of habitat, um, but it, it's not a deep dive into that kind of stuff. Um, you know, again, more shooting. I like to put people up in a deer stand and have them shoot out of a deer stand so they get comfortable with that. We also 
at that point teach them how to use a safety harness and a lifeline. We, we, you know, we have some box blinds and stuff, but we mainly hunt out of double ladder stands. And we've even provided some double ladders to mentors who are willing to allow access to their property. And we've been fortunate to have some grants and stuff by Cabela's and some other partners that have helped out with that. But, um, you know, the second night is hunting regulations, strategies, a little more safety, and then continued crossbow instruction. Another venison meal. It's an adult program. We serve beer. You know, if you're done shooting, we'll drink a beer. Um, I think it breaks down those barriers even more. Um, but that's really, you know, the all of our education other than what they're going to learn going through the mentored hunt. As I said, I'm, I'm a big proponent of continuing education. So there's a free ebook on our website and we offer it to, you know, all these um, participants. It's QMA's Guide to Successful Deer Hunting. Excuse me. Um, we have a, a set of 15, 20 videos on our YouTube channel. Uh, it's, it's pretty much our ebook done into video that Mossy Oak helped us do in Bass Pro Shops um, that have just been released this year. And we also this year, which something I'm super proud of, is we created the first online how to hunt module with Hunter Ed. So um, there, it, it's uh, for a small fee. Uh, when people go to take online hunter education, we um, we provide a pay-to-play um, learn to deer hunt module that's been getting a lot of uh, a lot of purchases, and we offer that free to our field to fork participants. Um, so I'm really a big proponent of sending them home with the continued ed. What I left out, you know, the first day, the first evening before we really get into anything, I make everybody stand up and introduce themselves. I want to know your name, age, you know, usually how you found out about Phil Fork, which, you know, depending on where we are, I, I typically know. And then why do you want to deer hunt? And I also ask, you know, a lot of the mentors come for the trainings and, it, and it's good because it goes ahead and starts building that um, you know, social support. It also allows us to, you know, they get to know them before the hunt. Um, you know, when we're doing destination hunts where we have all the guides, their mentors there, you know, I want them to see their hunters shoot. And so um, we ask them to introduce themselves again. Uh, Saturday afternoon, uh, you know, the start of our mentored hunt, we bring all the guides in and we have a guide meeting, you know, and we talk about, you know, what we're doing, where everyone's going, um, some best practices, you know, and tell them what they're responsible for. But we try to get people to, you know, stay away from topics like uh, politics and religion. You know, that we're trying to recruit a very diverse audience. And, um, you know, we just are looking, we, we try to focus on the common ground and things that divide us these days. But we also bring in all the hunters a little while later and allow them to shoot some more. And we get their mentors to sit with them while they shoot again to so they know how proficient their hunter is. Uh, and then they do an afternoon uh, deer hunt. If we're successful, we bring that deer in and we do a field dressing and skinning and quartering demonstration. Um, you know, we, we, we had the opportunity this year and the last couple of years to have that deer on Saturday evening. And I cook another venison meal. Uh, and then Sunday, we do the same thing. Um, and we've done processing demos on Sunday or, and we've done, um, we've done processing demonstrations at the culinary social, which is usually a couple of weeks 
um, further down the timeline because we want to give people more opportunity to continue hunting. And so at our culinary social, you know, it's a big venison wild game dinner, you know, adult beverages. Um, you know, we really try to make it social. We, we invite all past participants, all sponsors, anybody who's anybody who's been involved with Field to Fork. We, you know, eat a big meal, drink a few drinks, and we make them stand up and tell their story again. You know, what they liked, what they didn't like about the program, and then, you know, a hunting story if they'll entertain us. And that is probably the coolest part of Field to Fork right there. Um, it's hearing their stories from them, hearing their laughs, hearing, hearing, you know, the tough times, the struggle and, and the success. But, um, but that, that really creates that community and, and, and man, it's just, it's a, it's an awesome evening. Um, and then we continue to push them to get out, to keep on going and, and you don't have to push many of them. Um, I mean, I, I, I've had people, you know, reaching out to me and going hunting on some property we have while I've been halfway around the country all fall, it seems like, but, um, but it's, it's, it's just a, been a hugely rewarding program. Uh, you know, I, it is my job, but I would do it. I would do it if I didn't do this for a job. I mean, it's just, it's fun and it's successful and it's, and we've got, you know, we've got a whole community of hunters and, and you hear from the mentors, you know, um, you know how rewarding they find it they're they're re they're you know they're inspired by these hunters and that's exactly what you hear you hear from the the mentor you know that that they um they're inspired by these people they're getting out more often they're enjoying you know having these new hunters around them um seeing their enthusiasm uh that kind of stuff it's just it's inspiring but from the same token in reverse um, these, these mentors are, are valued by these new hunters. They want their knowledge. They want, you know, um, they, they talk about how they're the, you know, the new hunters talk about how the seasoned hunters passion for hunting is infectious to them. And, and, and in the reverse, you know, the, the mentors talking about how they're just inspired to get out more and to take these new hunters and, and, you know, I'm not asking you to give up a lot of days of hunting because you, you take them two or three times and most people are ready to sit by themselves. Um, so they might just be sitting on the other side of the property or, or whatnot, or might just give you a call when they need help. But, um, but it, it really, the, the reward goes both ways and, uh, and it, it's, it's just a ton of fun to be a part of it. So if someone listening either wants to be a mentor or one, maybe wants to become a hunter, uh, what can they do to find a field to fork program or maybe even try to start their own? Sure. You know, contact me. I'm here to help. We have, we have draft agendas. We have standardized curriculum. We're about to launch a big project at the ATA show. I've worked with ATA to create a mentor guide that has a field to fork theme you know, we have all this education that I talked about, the continuing ed, you know, some of some of the replications are using the videos for their actual education portions where they're watching one or two of the videos and discussing them. But um, you can find, um, you know, go to QDMA.com slash FTF or QDMA.com. 
Um, my email is all over that, but it is H-F-O-R-E-S-T-E-R at QDMA.com, H-Forster at QDMA.com. Um, you know, I, I'm here to help. Uh, you know, if you're a new hunter, I will try to connect you. You know, we don't have, you know, as I said, we've got 25 programs in 17 states. Um, you know, probably when this podcast airs, you know, we'll probably be closing up shop almost our fall programs. But, um, you know, reach out to me. Um, you know, we're starting to plan next year. Um, I connect a lot of people with local volunteers and, you know, they're mentoring on a one-on-one basis. Um, but if you want to replicate a field to fork, reach out to me too, you know, either way, um, I will do my best to connect you with someone or give you the resources, um, to run a field to fork. And, and, you know, um, I think, I think the biggest takeaway is I think hunters have become insular. And I don't think we're doing a good job of talking to our peers about hunting. You know, something that I haven't mentioned is we've done field to forks for industry. The first year we ever ran field to fork in Athens, we posted it on Facebook and a young lady from New Hampshire commented on the Facebook post and said, is there something like this where I live? And I clicked on her profile and she was an engineer at Ruger, the American firearms manufacturer. She actually uh, shot small bore, comp, you know, that's rimfire competition rifle shooting for MIT. Wanted to learn to hunt, never figured it out. So we actually, you know, talking to NSSF, we hosted a field to fork for Ruger and Sig Sauer employees, and we had to cap it at 24 because the New Hampshire Hunter Education Facility couldn't ha- you couldn't host any more hunters. Um, I just got done uh, the bearded buck. It's a TV show on Sportsman. We partnered with them, or they partnered with us, and we hosted a field to fork for Traeger Grill employees. Um, that was the most fun I've ever had. If you want to have some fun, mentor a professional barbecue chef. You know, <laughs> um, you know, because we we almost flipped seats. I mean, we did, um, but but I showed. You know, actually, Kip Adams was there, and Kip. Kip did the gutting and skinning demonstration, but I sat there with Danielle Bennett. Her, she goes by Diva Q. She's one of their big spokeswomen and and uh, one of you know multiple multiple national champion barbecue competition winner. And you know she cut up that that deer for the freezer. I wrapped it. You know usually we're showing them how to break down quarters. She was showing me how to do it better. You know and. We were making like bone-in French roast, and I mean, it was just amazing. But um, but um, you know, where I was getting was, I think unfortunately, hunters, you know, we think that hunting is um, edgy or misunderstood or not not you know, the public approval rating of hunting is not high, but it, it's not the case at all. Eighty-two percent of Americans approve of hunting deer and turkey for food. Uh, elk, bear, that kind of stuff. Uh, it seems like Americans have a little bit of a different relationship with them in their mind. But for deer and turkey, we're recording for in general, just in terms of you know, do you support hunting? We're recording all-time highs of public opinion of, of approval. So you know, 78, 80 percent of Americans approve of hunting for food. 82 percent approve of hunting deer and turkeys because they're in our backyard and they're you know, they're just, they're in our lives all the time and people realize that they're there and I think they're a little devalued because of it. But, um, you know, 
I guess it's the kind of the Second Amendment battle or whatnot. I mean, I think we we feel like we need to be entrenched, but we don't. You know, people people approve of hunting on a high level, and at the same time, there's a lot of people out there that want to learn to hunt. You know, I don't know how many hunters we could we could support in this country. I know it's a lot more than four and a half percent, but you know, at some point we we will saturate the availability for hunters, but we're not anywhere close. And I know just from reactions to podcasts like this, um, from you know the Wall Street Journal or whatnot, I get emails all day, every day of people wanting to learn to hunt, and we walk by them every day, just like there were more than 24 people at Ruger and Six Hour that wanted to learn to hunt that didn't know how. Um, we've hosted field to forks for QDMA employees because my colleagues saw what I was doing and they said, I'd like to do that too. So we've, you know, we did the exact same thing. We didn't have to go to the farmer's market or recruit them or recruit them any other way. They're in my office and we just said, Hey, you want to do this? We're going to take Friday off. We're going to run through all the education of field to fork and we're going to take you on a doe hunt in South Carolina on a member's property. Um, but we as hunters have got to do a better job. We need to share our stories, share our venison, and offer a helping hand to people who want to learn to hunt because the interest is out there. If that, if 82% of Americans approve of hunting and only 4% are doing it, there's some low-hanging fruit. There's these people who go to the farmer's market. There's these people that email me all day, every day. They want to learn to hunt. Hunting, learning to hunt is daunting. They need a mentor. And we need current hunters to start sharing their stories, sharing their venison, and offering to mentor new hunters. And the best part about it is it'll be your most rewarding hunt that year. And, and I, I'll, I'll back that. Call me if it's, it's not. And I don't have a lot I can give. But, I mean, seriously, like your most rewarding hunts will be when that first-time hunter gets that animal or just enjoys a day of field with you. But, um, you know, we've just got to get out there and become better advocates for hunting. Uh, we got to get, you know, quit hiding in the corner. I mean, that's obviously what's happening is we're not talking about hunting to non-hunting audiences. We're, we don't even know that our buddy down the street wants to learn to hunt because we haven't talked to him about it. But um, I guess it was our second year of Field to Fork. This gentleman, um, he was 56. His name was Rod. Worked for a roofing company, and uh, he came in and he said, there's eight offices down the hall in my office, and seven of them have deer heads hanging in them, and nobody ever invited me to hunt or offered. And that's what we're doing. I mean, I think that's the microcosm of hunting right now is, uh, is we're, we're, we're not um, you know, being open to newcomers. We're kind of being insular and walling ourselves off and, and uh, I think it's because we think that what we do is uh, not not approved by the masses, but it, it it is. And we need to take advantage of that. And we need to take advantage of these trends that we're seeing and uh, and try to s- save hunting. Because uh, if we don't do something, uh, you know, not only are there not going to be enough hunters in this country to fund conservation, but we're going to lose relevancy. And we all have to understand the negative consequences of becoming a vast minority of the population. The, you know, Swanee always says, Charles Evans, 
who I started Field to Fork with, he always says, the quality and quantity of hunting opportunities in Georgia is directly related to the number of hunters we have. And it's true. A lot of hunters view other hunters as competition, but we rely on hunting license and hunting dollars to create better opportunities where we hunt. And so we need to champion hunting and we, we have to remain relevant and become a larger piece of the population or we're going to be in a really bad spot. It, that, that was absolutely great. I think that is spot on, a, a very spot on assessment of our current situation and, and also, you know, what you are trying to do to, to try to bolster uh, the tradition of hunting in our country. Um, Hank, I want to thank you for coming on. This was absolutely great. Um, I can't wait to uh, share the videos. Uh, I'll make sure to put in our episode notes the um, QDMA website and your email address so that people can reach out. And, um, you know, I, it's definitely something that I would like to be involved in. So you'll be hearing from me too. Perfect. I really appreciate you uh, having me and, um, and I look forward to it. And now it's time for our call to action. The National Shooting Sports Foundation just released some numbers in a new survey that are very telling. And what I'm about to say basically just expands upon what Hank had to say in his call to action. And the reason why I'm expanding upon it is because it is vitally important to this topic today. The number that resonates the most with me is that 80% of people approve of legal hunting. And as Hank said, it's 82% when it's deer and turkey. That 80% for overall legal hunting is the highest that approval number has ever been. Along with that high number, only 13% disapprove of legal hunting, which has been the case basically since 2013, when that number took a big dip. With this in mind, and coupling on what Hank had to say, I implore anyone who identifies as a hunter to ask a non-hunter to join you on a hunt. If you have never been hunting before, I encourage you to go. If you know someone who hunts, ask them if you can go with them. Take a hunter education class and learn about this great outdoor activity. At the very least, you want to talk to that hunter. Ask why that person hunts. You're probably going to be surprised by that answer. Anecdotally, my mother does not hunt. She never has, and honestly, I don't think she ever will. But she is a dog person. And while upland bird hunting is not the basis of the Field to Fork program, the concepts remain the same. She likes to walk in the field with myself and my dogs because she likes to watch the dogs work. I have friends and family members who I have taken pheasant hunting and who I plan to take pheasant hunting in the future who have hunted deer found that they don't like to hunt deer because it's not active enough. I understand. So, hey, let's go in the field and walk behind the dogs. It's a little more active. It can hold their attention. 
whatever the way is to get someone into hunting, whichever type of hunting that is, we need to use every type of hunting to our advantage and bring people with us. Ask people to go with you. If every one of us would just ask a new person every single year, and I understand not everyone that you take is going to enjoy it and is going to continue hunting. But if every year you take a new person hunting, every hunter in America, if we all took one person hunting, new person, every single year, we could just explode with our numbers and our impact. And even if that person you take this upcoming season or the season after that, if they decide they don't want to hunt again, that's okay. Because if you did your job and you were an ethical and legal hunter, they're going to understand the concept. And while they may not hunt, they're going to approve it even more than they already did. And next thing you know, maybe we have 90% of the people in this country that support legal hunting. And we only have maybe 5% that do not support it. That is is the biggest message from this podcast. Ask your neighbor, ask your coworker. If they want to go hunting, take them. Wow. Talk about a great idea. It was absolutely awesome to talk to Hank about the Field to Fork program and how the QDMA is working to share our hunting heritage with a wider audience. The biggest thing I hope everyone takes from this episode is the willingness a lot of non-hunters have to try hunting. The only way to truly get a non-hunter into the field with you is to ask. So reach out to a family member, a friend, a co-worker, and offer to have them tag along. Even if they don't buy a license when they tag along the first time. If they are experiencing what you're experiencing and they're taking it all in, they're really going to enjoy themselves and there's a high likelihood they're going to take that next step to taking the hunter safety courses, whether in person or online, and then buying a hunting license. Hey, until next week, please leave us a rating and review on iTunes. But more than anything, please share this podcast with a friend. And of course, as always, get yourself outside, enjoy the outdoors and stay wild. Mm-hmm.